is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and tr trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And I'll read in Chinese. Matthew 5, 5, 五章十三到十六节，你们世事上的言，言若失了味，怎能叫它再咸呢？以后无用，不过丢在外面，被人践踏了。你们世事上的光，城造在山上，是不能隐藏的。人点灯，不放在斗底下，是放在灯台上，就
Wow, thank you all for staying, please. In that most powerful song, we crown him Lord and King of Kings. Sing this simple chorus with me. Crown him King of Kings. Crown him Lord of Lords. Wonderful Counselor. are touched by revival that has begun to spread from Asbury, Kentucky to that area and now is impacting the United States. Oh God, may it dwell in our hearts. May it begin in our hearts and dwell there so that we can be as these friends shared We are salt and light. We are to let our light shine. Not only in our lives, but in our giving. And Father, we thank you again for your blessings to this church, for your financial blessings to our families. We give you back your tithes and our offerings. And it's in that wonderful name of Jesus we pray.
Stand with me. Cantrell's coming this morning to read to us from Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed given proof of this by raising him from the word of the Lord from Acts 17 24 through 31 thank you Cantrell you may be seated the context of the message that we just heard which was part of a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul was given in the ancient city of Athens back in the first century. And we can rightly say about Athens during that time that it was perhaps one of the most famous and prominent marketplaces of ideas that the world had ever known. So if you've ever heard that term before, a marketplace of ideas, first century Athens was an epicenter in terms of being a marketplace of ideas. Yet could it even compare in any way to ours, to the marketplace of ideas in which we live, to the culture in which we live where we can't even begin to count all of the ideas, all of the passions, all of the messages that are constantly vying for our attention. Think about some of the things we hear with all of the messages that are coming our way each and every day this is true this is healthy this is right this is not really sinful this is just who i am this is american this is what our forefathers and foremothers intended buy this brand don't buy this brand 
Trust everything this network tells you. Don't trust anything that network tells you. I read an article on Facebook, so it must be true. He tweeted it. She put it on Instagram. Vote for this person. Definitely don't vote for that person. You should care deeply about this issue. Don't listen to people telling you you should care deeply about that issue. Follow me. Trust me. Don't trust them. Jesus would be for this. Or Jesus would not be for that. Again, we can't even count all the ideas, all the passions and messages that are constantly vying for our attention. And yet living in that kind of context, how can we possibly be, as we heard read in both English and Chinese this morning, the light of the world that Christ has called us to be? How in a a culture like ours, in a world like ours, in a marketplace of ideas like ours, can we be disciples who make disciples? Who are, are, are seeing people come to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And how can we be faithful to teach people, as Jesus said, everything that he commanded us in the midst of all of the confusing messages and all of the mess and craziness around us? How do we live as those kinds of people? Well, I submit to you that Acts 17 And Paul's message in Athens is as close as we're going to get to a biblical example of what it looks like to faithfully share about who God is and the way God works in a context perhaps a little bit like our own. As we talk about missions this month, and I mentioned this last week, this is not just missions month, okay? This is a a four-week series, a short little series to remind us that God's heart for the nations— and God's love for the nations, it is woven into the fabric of who we as disciples are called to be. We're to share that heart. We're to share that love. And last week we talked about the kingdom. We talked about what it means to be kingdom-minded. Yes, we are our great commission-focused as people who are sent out, but, but also we are called to be kingdom-minded. Do we see where the kingdom of God is at work around us? And are we actively a part of that kingdom work where we are right now? As we go through the rest of the month, next week we're going to talk about our victory in Christ. But we're going to talk about it in a way that reminds us that our victory is a shared victory. With all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, we, we live in the victory of Christ and it unifies us as one church. And then on the last Sunday of this month, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But we're going to take the Lord's Supper remembering that unity that exists with us and our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. We're experiencing in worship each Sunday this month a global church moment, a reminder that the name of Jesus is worshipped and proclaimed in many different languages all over the world. And in lots of contexts that look like ours, but also in lots of contexts that look very different than ours. And my prayer is that God will, will be reminding us and, and widening our lenses a bit as we see what missions means and what it means to be the global body of Christ around the world. Today we're going to talk about the mission of God and the move of God. And we're talking about it from this text we read, Paul's sermon 
given on Mars Hill in Athens way back in the first century. Now, as we think about what Athens was like during those days, as Paul was walking around the city, Paul was actually on a layover in Athens, as we read in Acts 17. He just stopped there for a few days. But as he walked around the city, and he walked among the people, he couldn't help but notice that there were so many idols and so many altars and so many temples built all over the city to the Greek gods, the Roman gods, to gods who had no names and and idols that people were worshiping in every part of the city as opposed to worshiping the one true God. As Paul walked around, he certainly would have seen the altar of Aphrodite. He would have seen the royal stoa. He would have seen the stoa of Zeus. He would have seen the temple of Ares and the stoa of Atalos. He would have seen the temples of the mother goddess and father Zeus. He would have seen the hall of the 12 gods. He would have seen the statue of Hermes in the Agora. He would have seen more idols than he could have counted. And what Luke tells us in Acts 17 is as Paul was walking around the city and among the people and he saw all of these idols, most of your translations will say something like, Paul was greatly disturbed. But really what the word means, if I may use this phrase, Paul was ticked off, okay? As he saw all of these idols and he saw the darkness and he saw how deceived so many of the people in Athens were, he was upset, he was angry. And so he began as he started in the synagogues among the Jewish people and the God-fearing Greeks like he usually did, but then he spilled out into the agora, into the marketplace. He was engaging with the people. And whoever would come across his path, he would talk to them about Jesus and about the fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And as he began having these conversations out in the Agora, he got into an argument with a couple of groups of philosophers. And, and as they heard what Paul was saying, they said to him, okay, we'd like to hear more from you on this. And they invited Paul to move from the marketplace up to a place called Mars Hill. Mars Hill was the home of what was called the Areopagus. The Areopagus, as, as it's described in Luke 17, was like a city council of, of sorts. You would have very wealthy and prominent people who would gather around at the foot of Mars Hill at the Areopagus every single day, and their form of entertainment was listening to the most current teaching of philosophers and religious leaders and folks who were commenting on the current events, and it may not sound very entertaining to us, but, but people would genuinely sit there for hours and hours each day just listening to the greatest speakers of their time. Luke says in verse 21 of Acts 17, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in Athens spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And this is the context where Paul was brought up before the crowds to be able to, to talk about what he had been teaching among the people about Jesus and about the resurrection. So each day in this spot, there was a constant rhetorical battle going on for who was right, who was wrong, and which ideas were good, better, and best. And though we don't go to the Areopagus to do this, we still like to have the same kinds of discussions and arguments even today. Think about what just happened this week in, in the NBA. LeBron James accomplished something incredible in terms of basketball. 
by breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's scoring record, a record that many people thought would never be broken. And once LeBron passed Kareem, all the talk began, right? LeBron has surpassed Kareem. He's surpassed all of those who came before Kareem. Some were even saying maybe LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. Let me just say as a little bit of a sidebar, okay? And you can trust me on this. LeBron is fantastic, but Jordan will forever be the greatest all time in the NBA. Agree or disagree? I grew up in the 80s and 90s. You can trust me, okay? Jordan is the greatest. If you're at the Areopagus, your argument better be better than that, stronger than that. And so in this context, in in this first century marketplace of ideas, Paul was able to present the gospel message to just about the most critical audience you would ever face. And I would argue, if you disagree with me on this, then prove me wrong, like we're in the Areopagus today. I would argue this was Paul's most adaptable moment in anything we read in Acts and any of his letters. This was the most unique audience he ever had the opportunity to share with. And so he had to be hospitable and he had to be inclusive. He also had to be extremely thoughtful. And so where Paul began addressing the Areopagus before we get to what we read this morning, he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus on Mars Hill and he said to them, people of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You're you're making sure all your bases are covered. I found an inscription even to a God whose name you don't know. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And as Paul begins the the, the central part of the message, he began at the beginning by proclaiming as the Bible does from Genesis 1 forward, there is only one true God. And he began this message by talking about who is the one true God? Who is this God that I've been proclaiming? Now think about who would have been in the crowd as Paul was preaching this message. You had some polytheists, to be sure, some people who believed in many gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. But you also had some monotheists, some people who believed in one God because there was a synagogue there. There was a Jewish population. There were some God-fearing Greeks. You probably also had some others that we probably wouldn't call them atheists, but, but those who really didn't care much about the gods. In fact, one of the groups of philosophers that had confronted Paul out in the Agora was a group called the Epicureans. And the Epicureans actually believed that the, if the gods even existed, they don't care about us. They're not involved in our lives. And so, so Paul is, is, is talking to people with such a wide array of beliefs And that's why he starts here at the most central tenet of the Jewish and Christian faith. There is only one God, and he is the one true God. And look at what Paul says of the one true God. Who is he? He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He is also the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands like we're seeing all throughout Athens. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us, but rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He begins at the beginning, talking about the one true God. We might interpret these first words this way. The one true God who is revealed to us in the scripture is the one who created everything that exists in heaven and in the entire universe, which means he also created you. But he's not only the creator, he is the Lord and the king. He is the Lord and the king of all that exists in all the heavens and on the earth and in the entire universe. And he is not dependent upon anything that human beings could offer to him as if he needs anything from us, but rather we are completely dependent upon him. Without him, there is no life. Without him, we have no breath in our lungs. Without him, we do not exist. And listen, we have no identity. But God is the one upon whom we are completely dependent. And all life, all breath, all existence, all identity comes through him. By the way, when you're sharing your faith with someone, this is a good place to start by establishing from the outset that we believe there is one true God. He created us. And then where Paul turns to next is that he, he has a purpose for our lives. Why is the one true God concerned with us at all? Paul discusses next. Why would the God of the universe, who is the Lord and the King, bother with us as human beings at all? But here Paul talks about how it is that the one true God relates to what the psalmist described as the apple of his eye. In all the universe that God created, only one part of creation gets called the apple of his eye, and that's us, human beings. Why does the one true God bother with us as human beings? Well, Paul continues, it's from one man, one person, that he made all of the nations. The two people, first of all, were a man and a woman. And from man, from that first man, he made all the nations. And he has set and he directs all of the times of all of the people and all of the places where all of those people will inhabit. And he does so according to his will and purpose. He has marked out our appointed times in history and the boundaries of all the places which we inhabit. The Psalms declare this. David writes in Psalm 31, But I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. So, so listen to me, because this is going to get deep here in the middle of the message. As Paul gets into this discussion, he's not only talking about God's plans and purposes for the act of creation, and not only talking about his plans and purposes for humans, but also that time and space, everything that exists, how it exists, when it exists, where it exists, it is all a part of God's divine plan. He could have chosen for each and every one of us to have lived at a different time. We could have lived 100 years ago. Our, our, our time on this earth could have been 1500 years ago by the way who would have wanted to live 1500 years ago the world was a rough place back in those days 
but for for his purposes and his plans he chose that we would be right here at this time and place and that we would live out our physical temporal lives on the earth right here and right now and he's done the same thing for every other human being who inhabits this planet and has ever inhabited this planet our times are in his hands and how this relates to missions and thinking about what god is doing in the world right now and has been doing in the world since the very beginning is the idea that god has a purpose and a plan for the who the what the when the where and the how and i want us to think of this as this is how i've titled the message today so this is really only a part of this middle section the the three questions related to these latin phrases and i didn't just use latin phrases because it sounds more intelligent as we're talking about the areopagus these are phrases that were used by ancient christians in the latin church as they were trying to put language to what they saw god doing in in connection to his heart and his plan for the nations of the world they would talk about imago day the image of god they would talk about missio day the mission of god and they would talk about a, a phrase that might be a little less familiar to many of us motus day the move of god and paul talks about all of these things in this part of Acts 17 so when we talk about the image of god the question we ask is do do you see the image of god in our neighbors do you see the image of god in your neighbor in in every one of your neighbors what did paul preach from one man he made all the nations in him all of us have life and breath he gives that to every person every single human being is a part of the apple of his eye every single one of us have been created in the image of god and listen every single one of them whoever them is to you has been created in the image of god all of us every one of our neighbors we've all been created in his image and god has chosen us as humanity to be his image bearers to the rest of creation that in us god's nature and god's character can be seen like can be seen in nothing else that has been created among that which has been created i love the way one ancient christian talked about it he said a living god cannot be represented by lifeless objects that's why paul said he's not seen in shrines and altars and temples because dead things cannot represent a living god but that ancient christian went on to, went on to say the living god is represented in we who are living beings we are made in his image do we see that the one true god is concerned with human beings first because he created us in his image second do we see the missio day do we see the mission of god unfolding do we see that what God is doing in the world and what he's been doing in the world is a part of a divine plan that he set into motion way back in Genesis and it continues here in the age of the church. From one man he made all the nations. Why? That they should inhabit the entire earth. God stated his purpose for human beings from the very beginning that we would not stay in one place forever forever 
but that we would multiply and we would fill the entire earth. And from the existence of the very, very first human beings, that's exactly what has been happening. We've been multiplying and we have been filling the earth. And as human beings have been multiplying and filling the entire earth, God has been revealing his missio day, his mission, to the people who belong to him. It starts way back in the Hebrew scriptures. How many times do we see God saying to someone, I want you to get up and pack up and move, go to another place where I am sending you and plant yourself there and be that light that I've called you to be when you arrive in that place. God does this all throughout the Old Testament. He calls people, he calls entire families, entire households, pick up everything that you are and everything that you have and go to the place where I'm sending you so that not when you get there, you'll become like them, but when you get to that place, you'll show them who I am and maybe they will believe in me too. Throughout the New Testament, how many times do we see God calling people out, commissioning them and sending them just as we heard from Matthew 28 to go and make disciples among all the nations. God is a missionary God and God has called us to be a missionary people as his people. One of the reasons we call God a missionary God is because of this phrase, Missio Dei. Actually, what Missio Dei was first used to describe in the Latin church was the Father sending the Son and God sending the Spirit to be with us here on earth. In other words, God has modeled this for us. He sent his son to, to make his dwelling among us to show us what it looks like to follow God. And Jesus gives us the clearest picture of who God is than we could have ever seen without him coming to the earth. God sent his son. God sent his spirit to be with us during this age, during the church age, as our guide, our comforter, the one who speaks to us and leads us. God sent and then as he sent and, and came to us himself, he called us to be a missionary people, to be sent people to all the places that he would call us to go. Do you see the mission of God unfolding and continuing to unfold in the world around us? And then the last phrase, the one that might seem a little strange to us, the motus day. Do you see the move of God at hand? As God continues to move pieces around and people around in the world, doing exactly what Paul said here in Acts 17, moving people around so that they might be drawn to him. And that as God is moving people, th those who are seeking him and looking to find him might reach out and find out that he's not far away at all but that he's close to them, and if they seek him, they will find him. And one of the ways that God is doing this is he is moving people around. Listen, he's moving people around his church, and he's giving us the opportunity, the responsibility, to be the light of the world, not only in the places we will go and to the people among whom we will go, but to the people that he will bring around us as the church. Sometimes God, sometimes God moves us as people to go, and sometimes as he scatters his people or he moves people around, he brings them to us. And we've been talking about the fact here for several years now 
that right here in Tulsa, God continues to move people and to bring people to our community and around us. Some who are, are seeking out to find him and have not yet found him. And what will our response to that be? But also, listen, this is, this is good news. God continues to move people just as he was doing in the first century, moving people out of places like Jerusalem and Antioch so that as they were scattered in most of the time because they were being persecuted, they ended up in cities like Ephesus and Philippi and Rome and Alexandria. And they ended up in those cities and they began Christian communities there. God's doing the same thing even today, even here in Tulsa. As, as many of our new Burmese neighbors and Venezuelan neighbors and Ukrainian neighbors and na- neighbors from Mexico and India and other parts of the world, they've come to our community and they are starting churches right here in our midst. Throughout the last six years of our international and refugee ministry here at our church, we have met so many faithful followers of Jesus from so many different parts of the world. We've met Christian people who are discipling their children, raising their families to follow the Lord, right here in Tulsa, who come from China, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, India, Lebanon, Jordan, Nigeria, Rwanda, Kenya, Togo, Mongolia, Russia, Afghanistan, Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, other countries in Europe. These are just a few of the countries that we've met through our our ministries and our partnerships here in this church. And as God is moving some people so that as they seek him, they might be drawn near the church and find him, he's also moving people to work alongside others in partnership so that we might all, as the global body of Christ, be a part of God's kingdom work wherever we are, even right here in Tulsa. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That God's kingdom is at work like that and and we can experience that kind of partnership and relationship. Instead of being siloed off in all of our different churches or places, we can see that as the body of Christ, we are in this thing together and it is all about his kingdom. There's an ancient letter that was written to uh, a person named... Diognetus, written by a, a, a disciple who was talking about uh, what Christians believe. And he said, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of language, customs, or nationality, because for them, any country is a motherland, and any mo- motherland is a foreign country. What did he mean? He meant, as we talked about last week, that we remember as disciples that we are citizens of a different kingdom first and foremost. And no matter where we find ourselves, as Christians, as disciples, Jesus is our king. And so whether we are in our home country or we find ourselves in another place, and whether the Christians around us here are in their home country or they've come from another place, it doesn't matter because for us, any country can be our motherland because Christ is king and we will serve him wherever we are. But also, any motherland sometimes feels like a foreign country even when we're at home because when we're living as disciples, when we are living as the light of the world, we will come head to head with darkness even in places where we're comfortable 
And if we are truly obedient and we're truly following Christ closely and faithfully, we're always going to be a little bit uncomfortable everywhere. We're always going to feel wherever we are, like Peter described, like, like we are foreigners and exiles in that place because we still live in a broken, sinful, fallen world and we're never going to be perfectly comfortable here as we follow Jesus. Listen, God is on the move. And as he is moving people, God is on the move among the people who are on the move. And God is also on the move among people of all ages. James mentioned in his prayer earlier, perhaps you've been seeing on the news this week or in other outlets what's been happening at Asbury in Kentucky, where a group of college students started some revival services several days ago. At first, I wondered if they were just trying to get out of going to class. But no, this thing has been going for day after day and people from all over the country are going to join it. Isn't it awesome to see Gen Z starting a revival and, and seeking the Lord's good for the people around them? God's at work among the young adults here in our church. He's also at work among our fit families who, who have young children and are raising their families He's at work among our families who have children and our families who have teenagers. He's at work among our teenagers here in our church. He's at work among our empty nesters classes. I've never been in a church where empty nesters serve in as many places as the empty nesters in this church do. God is at work among our empty nesters. He's at work among our bridge builders and our senior adults in the many ways that they are ministering and praying and gathering around to encourage others in God's word. God is at work and his kingdom is at work in our midst in lots of ways we don't see. Will we miss it or will we be a part of it? Will we see that God has a purpose and a plan and he has us right here, right now, who we are, when we are, where we are for a reason. As Paul finished out this message, he reminded us that as God moves people and calls people to service, that we have a message to proclaim. And the message relates to how, how do we worship this one true God who, who is involved in our lives? And how can we be right with him? Well, first Paul says, the image of God is not represented in shrines and altars. Or temples that are made by human beings no the image of God as we said is represented in living human beings and God, God calls all of us to repent from our sins and to worship and serve him alone with our entire lives yes Paul was frustrated he was angry about all of the idols and the false gods in Athens but he did not turn this into an us versus them moment Instead, what, what he did was he made this proclamation, we are all called to repentance. So listen, I know the clock says 12 o'clock, but it's fine, okay? When I was working this message out this week, it was an hour long, and I promise you we are not going to go another 30 minutes, okay? Be with me for five more minutes, but hear this, because at the heart of what Paul proclaimed to the people the, the most offensive confrontational thing that Paul said in all of this message was that all of us are called to repentance 
Repentance is an equal opportunity offender. And what that means is every single one of us, when we come face to face with who God truly is and and what his word tells us he expects from us, we should all be offended by our sin because we realize that God is offended by our sin. And so the call to all of us is repentance. And that's what Paul says. He doesn't single out one group in the crowd and say, God's called you to repentance. He says, no, God calls all people everywhere to repent. And this call rings out to us today. That this is how we worship. And this is how we can be right with the one true God. That we come to him in an attitude of repentance And as we confess our sins, we also then take that step of surrendering our lives to him. And we say, you are the one true God. Jesus Christ, you are the one true king. And because you died on the cross and you rose again, I believe that sin and death have been defeated. And I no longer have to be bound to them. And through repentance, through coming to you and surrender, from this day forward my life belongs to you some have said that Paul's message in Athens was his least successful because we see at the end of Acts 17 that only a few people stayed around and only a few people believed but a few people believed and a few people took the step of repentance Luke even tells us a couple of their names at the end of Acts 17 and they heard this message. They, they responded with repentance. They believed upon the one true God and they surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. That above anything else that we have been given to proclaim is the message. This is our mission. This is what it means to be sent people. That we would proclaim with our words, with our actions, our attitudes, and our lives what we believe to be true about God and Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So let me close with these words. God made the world and everything in it, which means he made you. He is the Lord of all, and he has a purpose and a plan for you to be who you are, when you are, and where you are right now. God is at work all around the world, and all around you and in his kingdom work he is drawing people to himself so that they might reach out to him and find him and God loves you he loves you so much that he gave his son for you to die for your sins and to defeat sin by the cross and death through his resurrection And it is because he loves you that he calls you to repentance. Not just so that you can be free from sin and death, but that you might truly live. That's why God calls you to repentance. Today, may we see that in him we live and we move and we have our being. Would you pray with me? Lord, today this text has taken us through time and space to all of eternity for every single person in every walk of life and every time that's ever existed. Lord, how can we even comprehend 
the gravity and the breadth and the weight of the scriptures we've read. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would remove from us in this, these last minutes as we have a, one more time of worship. Lord, would you remove distractions from our minds and our hearts? And would, would you draw us to you? For those of us who are, are followers of Jesus, who are disciples, Lord, would you open our eyes even further to the ways that you are at work? And would you help us to set aside anything that would keep us from being a part of your work? And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never come to you in repentance, they've never surrendered their lives to you, they've never said, Jesus is King, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Today, as we have this time of response, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to you as we've lifted up the name of Jesus. Bring them to you and to the cross and let today be the day that they surrender their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.